0: think we're all looking forward to getting back into, most of us maybe, maybe not the kids, back to our routine and school and our regular schedules. And yet at the same time, we need to be cautious that after celebrating Christmas and the birth of our Savior and all that means for us, that settling back into our routine doesn't mean complacency. At the same time, it's the time of year that we're talking about New Year's resolutions and uh, new new commitments or um, recommitting. And we need to be careful also that we're not unintentionally making resolutions based off of worldly pursuits. This morning in God's providence, we come to the Sermon on the Mount, which um, in Luke is sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. P-L-A-I-N. In Matthew, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's a small portion in Luke. It takes up three chapters in Matthew. Commentators often wonder and disagree over whether it's the same sermon, but Matthew decided to record it in its entirety in Luke recorded just a small portion of it when you compare the two sermons though they pretty much start out the same way and in the same way and do cover a lot of the same ground in the middle but they really look like two different sermons i take it to mean that jesus preached this sermon on multiple occasions and anyone who's ever done any preaching knows that it never quite comes out exactly the same way twice. Do you know you're not getting the same sermon first service got? It's the same slides and the same scripture and the same points, but there's a dynamic that happens between you and the congregation and the Holy Spirit working where different illustrations and different things are highlighted. And so I imagine that Jesus preached this sermon many times. It was kind of his stump speech, like politicians have. You go on the road and you give a version of that speech and you tailor it to whichever city you're in, whichever crowd you're in. Uh, Maybe a current event might help you drive a point home. But for the most part, This is Jesus' message. How wonderful that at the start of the new year we land on this text. This is His message. This is what He came to preach. And you'd be excited to know that the sermon's all about happiness, even though the word doesn't appear in your English translations. Maybe a couple of you have a translation That use the word happy instead of blessed. But I want to make the point this morning, first of all, that blessedness means happiness. Blessedness means happiness. It's a sermon about happiness. And who doesn't want to hear a message about happiness? Let's be honest, we all want to be happy. It's what motivates all of us. And God built us with our motivations. And somehow evangelicalism has convinced us that happiness is some kind of substitute, counterfeit human drive that should be replaced by a pursuit for holiness, as if happiness and holiness can't peacefully coexist. I believe Jesus clearly teaches that the path to happiness goes hand in hand with holiness. It's not we're all on the path to happiness and we need to stop trying to be happy and instead be holy. No, our happiness will come in and through our holiness. I believe God is a happy God, not happy clappy, happy in the sense that he is perfectly at peace with himself and the other members of the Trinity, perfect love, perfect relationship, knows who he is, knows his purpose, he's fully satisfied, he's not waking up each day like we are, longing for something else, longing for something more, trying to figure out what the missing piece of the puzzle is. I am glad we have a God who's not like that. That's the way the rest of us are, and often we're the blind leading the blind, trying to figure out what is finally going to bring us that happiness and blessedness that we all desire. So it's a sermon on happiness. All agents of change throughout history teach on happiness. It's how you get a crowd. Let's face it, it's how Joel Osteen fills an entire arena always teaching on happiness, your best life now, your happiest life now. And so part of us, as evangelicals, say, ooh, there must be something wrong with that message. And we're all a little uncomfortable this morning that the pastor's talking so much about happiness. And yet, don't you want to be happy? Is there anyone in this room who doesn't want to be happy? Do you really think our God saved us so we can be miserable? Do you really think that brings him glory and honor, to be miserable? We have many patriots in this room. You believe in the ideals that founded this country. The preamble to our Constitution says that we were all endowed by our our Creator with certain inalienable rights. Among those are what? Life. Liberty and the pursuit of holiness. (laughs) The pursuit of happiness. Of course holiness is important to God. It's not an either or, it's a both and. He cares about our happiness and our holiness. The problem is the world has become convinced that if you pursue holiness, you're never going to find actual happiness. And that has seeped into our understanding as Christians. The Sunday school answer is, I shouldn't be pursuing happiness, I should be pursuing holiness. But deep down in places you don't really want to talk about, you want happiness. We can talk about it. Jesus gave a whole sermon on happiness. So this is how revolutionaries and preachers and agents of change have always strategized getting a crowd to follow them. Talk about happiness. Tap into your current state of unhappiness. And sometimes you need to be convinced that you're unhappy. You should be dissatisfied. You should be discontent. Discontent. There should be something more. Isn't this what advertisers do? We wouldn't buy any stuff if we didn't think there was happiness just beyond the next purchase. And so then the agent of change offers you hope. That happiness is just around the corner. That change is coming. Hope and change. Where have I heard that? You think, President Obama was the first person to tap into hope and change. We all hope for something better. The question is, what is the better and can they deliver it? What is the better and can they deliver it? You must be able to convince people you have the power or the recipe for change that will bring happiness. And Jesus, this morning, is telling us he has the formula. He knows what is true happiness and how to acquire it. No wonder the crowds were so big. This guy knows how to preach. He knows what drives people. He understands humanity. He created humanity. He created us with our drive and desire for happiness. He's also fully man. He understands the human condition. The difference is Jesus isn't fallen. And so he understands what will truly bring us happiness. We can listen to him. We can trust him. He can deliver. But I'll warn you it's not going to sound at all like what you associate happiness with. Remember, at the end of his ministry, the world killed him. The guy who said he had the key to happiness. They killed him. The con man convinces you that he can deliver happiness if you'll just relinquish it. Your rights or your power or your freedoms or your money. The revolutionary convinces you that your unhappiness is someone else's fault and that you should be angry and that the time for action is now and that may mean taking what is rightfully yours by force. reading Al Moler this week the briefing you remember Dr Moler's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary that's the flagship seminary for the Southern Baptist Convention where Southern Baptist church you should read the briefing it's free and the guy like sleeps 3 hours a night and he spends his time reading and reading and reading and then distilling that information down for you and and Um, So you don't have to read the New York Times and the LA Times and the New Yorker and the Washington Post. And he'll do all that for you. So you can get on with your life and uh, he can alert you to what's going on in the world and give you really a good Christian worldview explanation for what's going on. And this week he reminded us that it's the 25th anniversary of the end of the Cold War and the Iron Curtain coming down and the Berlin Wall coming down and thought it was important to remind us why those walls even came up in the first place. Because we have a generation of millennials who think that communism is a good idea. Let's give socialism a chance. You know, The political philosophy that was responsible for probably 100 million deaths in the 20th century responsible for the failed economy currently of Venezuela and Cuba, North Korea. He traced communism back to the philosopher Hegel, H-E-G-E-L, Hegel, the Hegelian dialectic. little history lesson for you here. In brief, Hegel said, it's not a god of history that's making things change. What makes things change in our world is that there's ideas, thesis, theses, and then a new idea comes along, the antithesis or the antithesis, and then there's some dialogue and some quarreling and some debating and sometimes war, and out of that emerges a synthesis or a synthesis, and that's an evolutionary perspective of how the world works. And when the world abandoned God, they needed a replacement God. And so ideas became the replacement gods of our time. Karl Marx comes along and says, I agree with you, and I think the greatest agent for change is in the economic realm. All men need to work and acquire money to buy goods to be happy. And you can tap into these desires to cause great change. And the people who put those ideas into practice were your Lenins and Stalins and Mao and Castro. And those were the revolutionaries who said you should be very unhappy because those people have what is rightfully yours and are keeping you from happiness. Temporarily give me your freedom, your power, your money, your vote, and I will make sure you get what is rightfully yours. And we're going to have to take it by force. And sometimes that's bloody. But once the dust settles, we'll have a time of unparalleled peace and prosperity and happiness for all. That sounds great. And if you get people desperate enough, they're willing to put up with a dictator. It's what the whole Star Wars saga is based off of. The Galaxies falling apart, give all the power to the emperor, he'll make it all good. And when it's all good, he'll, we'll go back to a democracy. Right. Just like when they say, we're going to raise your taxes temporarily. And then, once we've paid everything off, we'll go back. No. Whenever you give up power, you never get it back. These systems never deliver the happiness that they promise. They just become the rich. And you say, wait a minute, I thought we were going to equally distribute everything. And they say, well, that didn't mean me. Somebody has to Manage the whole system and I'm going to need extra resources to do that. For the last eight years we had a revolution going on. It wasn't a bloody revolution although there's been quite a bit of violence associated with it but through the use of a pen and a phone and 14 trillion dollars in new debt we've tried to force hope and change on the world. And the new guy's offering the same thing, just in a different package. Jesus is a different type of revolutionary. He's still offering happiness, but he can actually de- deliver real hope and real change. He's not offering to make America great again. He's offering to make humanity great. Again, from from the heart. From the heart. One soul at a time. And so my goal this morning is to convince you that Jesus cares about your happiness. First, I want to show you from great Christian thinkers of the past that this concept of happiness isn't foreign. I'm not making this up. You don't need to be suspicious. St. Augustine, Augustine, if you will, writes, Every man, whatsoever his condition, desires to be happy. For who wishes anything for any other reason than that he may become happy? There is no man who does not desire this. And each one desires it with such earnestness that he prefers it to all other things. Whoever, in fact, desires other things desires them for this end alone. So even if it looks like you desire something that isn't happiness, you're desiring that thing because you think it will lead to happiness. It what drives and motivates all of us. No one gets up in the morning and says, I think I will make choices that will make me unhappy. And yet, we're the most unhappy nation in the history of the world. We're the most affluent The most wealthy, we have the most stuff than any other people in any other time in human history. And we are objectively, measurably, the unhappiest people who have ever lived. That ought to tell you something. Sixty percent of our fellow Americans over the age of 12 take some kind of medication for chronic unhappiness. So I know that's many of you in this room today, and we're not singling you out as there's a problem with you because you're not listening to Jesus. It's a serious condition. At times, we will all experience great unhappiness. And sometimes it sets in for days and days become weeks, And weeks become months. The point being, though, that if the things that the world said would bring us happiness did, then we ought to be the happiest people on the face of the earth. So why all the unhappiness and depression? Blaise Pascal All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American theologian of all time, arguably. There is no man upon the earth who isn't earnestly seeking after happiness, and it appears abundantly by the variety of ways they so vigorously seek it. I love that, the variety of ways. All the different ways we're trying to pursue happiness. They will twist and turn every way, ply all instruments to make themselves happy men. If this is the case, then why has modern evangelicalism turned happiness into a forbidden word? You rarely hear sermons on happiness. You rarely find Christian books on happiness. If they are, they tend to be in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel section. So you say, I ought to stay away from those. And rightly so. It's a perverted type of happiness. Any preaching on happiness that ignores human suffering and sin and pain and tribulation isn't telling you the whole story. But the great evangelist George Whitfield said, isn't it the end of religion to make men happy? By end, he doesn't mean that's an end to religion. He means that's the final goal of religion. We'll say, what's... What's the end game when you see somebody doing something? What's the point? What's your purpose? What are you after? What's the end game? What's the chief end of man, according to the Westminster Catechism? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So, what is the end of religion? To make men happy. All religions of the world offer happiness. You're not going to get a whole lot of converts or followers if you're offering misery. Oh, sign me up. Pass the plates. Does Jesus want your heart only for the same end as the devil does to make you miserable? If you come all the way down here to die on the cross, we'd be miserable. Isn't happiness part of the equation? How are we going to share the gospel if it's this? Well, Jesus died for you to make you holy and miserable. Who, who wants that gospel? That brings glory to God? I don't think so. Are we going to get to heaven and find an unhappy, miserable God? Why would we want heaven then? No, He only wants you to believe on Him that you might be saved. This, this is all the dear Savior desires to make you happy that you may leave your sins to sit down eternally with Him. Aye, there's the rub. The world's looking for happiness while holding on to their sins. They think, Sin is the road to happiness. And we've acquired that. We've inherited that. It's still with us, even as redeemed saints with new natures. And so as we start the new year, there's a temptation. After all this wonderful teaching about the most important thing in the universe being Jesus Christ and what a gift it was that God sent his only son for us. And now all the wrapping paper's put away and all the decorations are going down and we're going back to quote-unquote, normal life. And how many of us will arrange our lives here in 2017 in order to increase the likelihood that the things that we have come to believe will bring happiness get multiplied. So we'll want our job situation to be such that um, either i make more money or I have less responsibilities or what whatever you think will make you happier at your work you look at your relationships and you're looking for ways to make each one of those relationships that are important to you bring more happiness no one's saying hey let's look on let's work on our misery together we all are looking for the secret ingredient to happiness in every aspect of our life but If we're living in a world that doesn't have the answers, then let's be careful not to get caught into the trap of, well, I look on Facebook and all these people appear to be happy, so I need whatever they have. Folks, most people only post on Facebook their happy moments, and they often lie about those. So does the Bible speak of happiness or should we be talking about joy? Because that's the sermon I've heard so many times. Oh, God doesn't want you to be happy. Happy's a cheap imposter for joy. Like, okay, joy sounds good too, but I'd settle for happy most days of my life, especially the days where I'm down. Hey, I'll take happy. The... Hebrew word for happy is asher. The Greek word for happy is makarios. The King James version translated asher and makarios as blessed instead of happy. And nobody wants to change the translation. Blessed is a good word. It's not a wrong word. It's just that blessed meant something very different in the 17th century. A blessed person was someone who was happy, fulfilled, satisfied, at peace. Ah, all is right with my world. Happy. Isn't that what you want? It's what I want. I get little moments of it. I shared with you a few weeks ago that two days before Christmas, when that snow hit, And all the excitement of Christmas and a white Christmas and kids playing in the snow. And my wife said, all is right with my world in this moment. Isn't that a wonderful thing? We don't get many of those moments, do we? But we want more of them. But you see, the problem there is how am I going to recreate that moment? You need Christmas. You need the snow. You need the presents. You need kids at home, you need nobody sick or ill, nobody's passed away in our family recently, you know, it it took a lot of dominoes falling to get to that moment that we could say, wow, in this moment, I'm happy. And then someone threw a snowball a little too hard at someone else, and it was gone. (laughs) And so life becomes this almost impossible vain attempt of trying to string together those happy moments until they get closer and closer together. Until maybe one day it's one continuous necklace of happiness. But the beads keep falling off. So we settle for blessedness. Well, I'm not happy, but at least I'm blessed. As if those are antonyms or completely different words altogether. It almost seems sinful to wish someone happiness. As Christians, we say, may God bless you. I hope he blesses you in 2017. Well, if that blessing doesn't include happiness, I don't want it. What kind of blessing is that? I'm here to tell you this morning that the Bible has lots to say about happiness. Not the fleeting happiness of gratifying the flesh in every moment, in every conceivable way. That's not the kind of happiness the Bible talks about. To a Hebrew speaker, Asher meant happy. To a Greek speaker, Macarius meant happy. When they read those words in the Bible, they thought happy. Not blessed. When they saw the word Barach, they thought blessed. What word do you think Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount? Makarios. Happy are those. Happy are you. Who? We're going to find out what Jesus says is the definition of happiness and who the happy people really are in this world. Not the people who feel happy all the time, the people who God objectively declares, these are the happy people. And if God declares these are the happy people, then they must be the people who are truly happy. Every English speaker in 1611 would have understood blessed to mean happy. So when I read the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to interchange the word happy for blessed and go back and forth. By the way, the Bible uses the word barach for blessing, the Aaronic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine in you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. That's the word barach. It's a vehicle for for happiness. Blessing is different than happiness, but blessing is a vehicle for happiness. If God made his face shine on you and was gracious unto you and looked upon you with favor and gave you his peace, what do you think you would be? Say it with me. Happy. There's happiness. So yes, blessing and happiness go together. They're definitely cousins. I'm not setting blessedness apart from happiness. Blessedness is a good word for our Bibles. And obviously, if it was a bad word, not the right word, translators would have changed our Bibles a long time ago. What I have to do is help you to see this morning that blessedness and happiness go together. It's almost like we've gotten to this place where I'm convinced I can't be happy, so I need to learn to be content with blessed. And now blessing doesn't sound very exciting. How are you going to glorify God if you've determined blessedness is the runner-up prize? Psalm 1, which determines the entire theme of the Psalter. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Guess what word? It's not... Barach, it's Asher. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Truly happy is the man who doesn't look to the world to define the happy life. Because the world scoffs at God's definition of happiness. and the world says giving into your sinful desires is the path to happiness happy is the man that delights in the law of the lord and in his law he meditates day and night so we see that there is a connection between happiness and holiness it's a direct connection between happiness and holiness the person who pursues holiness finds happiness Blaise Pascal, what if God is happy and he desires us to be happy? Some of you were raised in theological traditions that it was hammered into your head that God is very upset all the time. He is very disappointed with humanity. And some of you had a mother or a father who was like that. And that view of God is forever imprinted onto your heart. And that somehow happiness is wrong. Maybe you had a parent or a grandparent or a teacher where any kind of happiness... No, we don't do that here. And so you've associated happiness with with sin... Certainly pursuing false happiness by indulging the flesh is sinful. But listen to this. What else does this longing and helplessness proclaim? He's talking about this insatiable desire to be happy. This, we have it one moment, it's gone the next. And we know there's got to be something better to life. Where does that come from? What if there was once in each person a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? What if this desire for happiness means that at one time we had happiness as the human race and it's gone, but the shadow's still there? We try to fill this in vain with everything around us, seeking in things that are not there the help we cannot find and those that are there. So the things we do have, we're not finding the happiness we're looking for from them, so we're constantly looking for the things we don't have to supply happiness. Yet none can change things because this infinite abyss can only be filled with something that is infinite and unchanging. In other words, by God himself, God alone is our true good. Beloved, Satan tempted our first parents with happiness. You will be happier if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, wait a minute. God said I would die. That doesn't sound like happiness. Oh, no, you won't die. You'll die to ignorance. You'll die to boredom. Anything new can only be found by disobeying God. He's holding back. Look how happy he is. Why shouldn't you get to be happy? All these things are inferred in the temptation. You have to make someone discontent with what they already have. Adam and Eve had God. Perfect relationship with God. They had paradise. If it If they could fall into the temptation of discontent, how much more will we fall into it as fallen creatures living in a fallen world? Yes, we're easily tempted that there's got to be more to life. And following God isn't what's going to deliver. That's Satan's plan. The very thing God said would bring death and no happiness, Satan says will bring a better happiness. You will be better off apart from God, making up your own definitions, your own reality, your own philosophies, your own theology. I'll decide what makes me happy. How dare you tell me what will bring me ultimate happiness? Look, if any of you tried to tell me that, I would be insulted and I would laugh in your face. You don't know me. You don't know what brings me happiness. But what if it's God who's telling us I know what will make you happy. You don't even know what will make you happy. Are you happy? No. Not all the time. Then maybe we ought to listen to God. Maybe He does know what will make us happy. What's the biggest section at the bookstores? It's the happiness self help section. Everyone wants happiness. And Millions of books have been written on it, and nobody's happy. We should listen to God. Well, why does Jesus know where so many others have failed? Well, look at all the miracles he's done. If he has authority over sickness and the weather and creation and the spiritual realm... Maybe he does have the authority to know what will bring us happiness and the power to deliver happiness. Now, this is before anyone knew he was going to die for them. At this point, he's just preaching, I have the new recipe for happiness. All those people who appear to be happy aren't really happy. All right. I'm listening. Are you listening? Lord, tell us then who is really happy. Because I know what the world says, and I've been pursuing the world's strategy, and sometimes I have some success, but ultimately, no. Jennifer and I were pursuing happiness apart from God, before we became believers. And we had all the things the world said. The American dream. And the careers and the education and, and the house and the 1.8 kids or, you know, whatever it is. A couple pets, a couple cars. And we'd be happy at moments, but then there would be long Periods of time where you just didn't know what was missing. And before you know it, you start blaming one another. Nobody blames themselves for their unhappiness. I want to be happy. Why would I keep myself from being happy? It's got to be other things in my life or other people. Last year, around this time, I preached a sermon on happiness. And we were in the book of James. James. Here we are in Luke, and this is a common theme in the Bible. Randy Alcorn, who wrote that big, thick book on heaven that we all like, wrote this book on happiness, and I recommend it to you again. He writes, Based on the books I've read, sermons I've heard, and the conversations I've had, I'm convinced that many Christians believe our desire for happiness was birthed in humankind's fall. Like the desire for happiness came after the fall. It's part of our sinfulness. But what if our desire for happiness actually comes from God? What if He put that in us? That's our driving, motivating desire to be happy. What if he wired his image bearers for happiness before sin entered the world? In other words, the fall didn't generate the human longing for happiness. It just derailed it and misdirected it. So the solution isn't to to no longer pursue happiness. The solution is to realize where the pursuit of happiness has been derailed by our fallenness, listen to God, and get it back on the right track, and then pursue happiness vigorously according to God's recipe. That's what John Piper's entire ministry is all about. Christian hedonism. You want to be a hedonist? Hedonists live for pleasure. You want to live for pleasure? Make God your ultimate pleasure, and you can have as much of Him as you want. You can indulge in God. Glorify God by... Enjoying him forever, he says. Right? The Westminster Catechism says, glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper says, glorify God by enjoying him forever. Overdose on God, which is impossible because he sustains. And you can never get enough of him, and you never run out of him, and you'll never be bored. So let's just put out on the table just for this Sunday and then we'll spend the next couple Sundays looking at the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain in more detail. What then is the world saying will bring happiness? If if the world got up and said, I'm going to preach on happiness, here's what it would be. Number one, you need to be wealthy. Let's be honest. You need money to buy things. and. You need those things to be happy. You need money to buy your your Disneyland passes. You need money to go on your vacation to the coast. You need money to buy your beautiful house and fill it with beautiful things. So, let's just be honest. You need to be wealthy to be happy. Number two, you need to have all of your appetites fulfilled. I'm not just talking about food. All the things that you think make you satisfied and happy. I want to go to the movies. I want to go now. I don't want to wait for it to come out on DVD. I want want all my pay channels. I want my tunes right there. Now. I want a nice house. I want someone to take care of the garden for me, unless I like gardening, and then I will do that myself. Whatever I desire, I don't want to have to wait for it. That would make... happy I want to laugh and smile all the time I want to be entertained I never want to be depressed I never want to struggle I never want to endure any pain or suffering and I really don't want to know about anyone who's enduring pain or suffering because that's a downer and I want to be popular and accepted I want to be the life of the party I want to have lots of friends I want them to laugh at all my jokes just described i think tom cruise <laughs> i was thinking about him because that guy's always got that big grin on his face every time you see him i need it when he wants a new wife he goes and gets a new wife he never plays any serious roles anymore cuz he just can't pull it off he's he's done trying to win his oscar when people tell him about all the suffering in the world and why don't you pick up a cause, he's a Scientologist. That's all illusion. And we laugh and we say, well, that's ridiculous. And, and then if we're honest, we try to live like him. Come on, be honest with yourself. In your weaker moments, you envy God. Those with all the resources and all the friends and no struggles. I mean, we don't want to struggle on purpose. So what's the answer here? So here's how Jesus launches his sermon on happiness. Instead of happy are the wealthy, he says, happy are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Happy are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Happy are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now he's using exaggeration for effect. This is hyperbole because it would be an insult to tell someone from a third world country who doesn't know where their next meal is coming from that they're starving and they're in abject poverty And their loved ones are dying daily from malnutrition if Jesus came and said, actually, you guys are the happy people. We wouldn't buy it for a second. Oh, we may listen to it and say, oh, that's really deep. But a day later, we'd say, that's so unlivable. And so certainly this isn't social gospel. He's not saying that people who are poor and hungry and are weeping should just suddenly become happy. So what is he saying then? It's a wonderful effect though because it certainly gets our attention. Wait a minute, this is the exact opposite of everything we just listed the world thinks would make you happy. Even redeemed Christian people, if we're honest, would say, I do feel happier when I have money and when I can have my appetites satisfied, and when I'm laughing and having a good time. But then he takes it up a notch, and he says, Happy are you when men hate you, and ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. That's a big conditional statements, why I underlined that last part. Without that last part, it makes no sense. With that last part, the whole sermon is making sense now. If you've put your trust in the Son of Man, the Messiah, if you've put your faith in Him as the agent of hope and change, if He is the way, the truth, and the life, if He really has the path to happiness and that there's another world beyond this world waiting for us that will make the best day in this world look like the worst day of your life in comparison, then he can say all these things. So then why are these people happy objectively? When we look at the list and say, I don't see anyone happy on that list. What he's saying is that is that until you realize that the key to your happiness can only be found in a right relationship with God. Then you'll never be happy. I don't care what you have in this world. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how many nice restaurants you can go to. I don't care how much stuff you have. I don't care how many friends you have until you realize that all that is fading away and is nothing without Jesus then you, my friends, who have all that, are actually the poorest people in the universe. Because you will never, never want Jesus. If you have all that and you're satisfied and you said, this is the good life, we're the happy people, we're the blessed people, you'll never desire God. And so if God is the greatest thing that you can ever have, then He is saying the happy people are the people who realize they got nothing here. They've got nothing here. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. You know, for in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. The prophets who came and had the same message about blessing and happiness were scorned and ostracized and hated and insulted. And God says in His Word, those prophets are the happy, blessed people who are enjoying the reward in heaven for being faithful prophets. Oh yeah, huh, God does say that. And conversely, He says, Woe to you who are rich! For you're receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Hey, the false prophets had everything on that list. We said the world associates with happiness and God says, woe to those false prophets. You really want to be like them. And in Jesus' day and age, it was the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and chief priests and elders who everybody was envious of. And they thought they were being blessed by God. And the proof that they were blessed by God was their wealth and their popularity and their laughter and happiness. And here Jesus comes onto the scene and says, Don't think those are the happy people. Now, how can he say this? Because he knows the Father. He knows who God objectively determines are the true happy people. It's the people who want God and realize their sin is standing in the way of a right relationship with God. And so Matthew fills in the blanks for us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not just people who are... have abject poverty. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. I don't have any righteousness of my own. I want God. I can't have Him because I have no righteousness. I hunger for righteousness. I'm tired of my sin. I'm tired of the sin nature. I'm so hungry for righteousness. Those are the people who will find happiness because when the gospel message comes to them and says, you can have the righteousness of Christ, Oh, that is what my soul has been missing. The righteousness of Christ. Blessed are those who weep because you'll laugh then. I weep. Why am I weeping? I'm weeping over my fallenness and my brokenness and I'm so tired of messing up all the time. That's why I'm weeping. Well, It doesn't seem like it today, but in an ultimate sense, you will be the happy one because you realize you need God's forgiveness because you want more than anything, a right relationship with God. And if the world says that's foolishness and that's stupid and that's trivial and they mock you and scorn you and insult you, then you should be happy. I know it doesn't feel happy in the moment to be insulted and hated and scorned and ostracized by the world. But if being accepted by the world means that you will have to reject God, then you don't want that. So Randy Alcorn writes, As Adam and Eve's descendants, we inherited separation from God and therefore happiness. Ages later, we retain a profound awareness that we were once happy and that we should be happy. and this compelling desire for genuine happiness, while at times is painful, it is God's grace to us. Wow, how could that be? Because longing for the happiness humankind once knew we can be drawn toward true happiness in Christ, which is offered in the gospel. God used, here's his testimony, My persistent desire for happiness to prepare me for the gospel message. The good news of great joy in Christ was exactly the cool water my thirsty young soul craved. The gospel is good news only to those who know they need it to be truly happy. Had I been happy without Jesus, I never would have turned to him. And so he understands it, he gets it. Those who are happy without Jesus, we should pity. Because the one thing that will bring true, lasting happiness, they don't want. But the truly happy people, figuratively speaking, are those who are dissatisfied with what the world has to offer. Didn't find happiness there. I just found misery and it's a big letdown, and it's a big disappointment, oh, you're the happy people then. Because you're ready to receive Jesus. Had I been happy without Jesus, I never would have turned to him. That's how Jesus can say, happy are those who are poor, happy are those who hunger, happy are those who weep, happy are those who are ostracized by the world. That's how he can say that and mean it. And we'll explore then how to live as those people and be truly happy next Sunday. If you want to find out, you'll have to come back. Uh, But you can read ahead for sure. Father, thank you for wanting us to be happy and making the way to true happiness through Christ. May we not settle for any counterfeits, but hunger and thirst for true happiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, God bless you and make you happy.